Hello, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. Today, we are speaking to Ron Purser. Ron Purser is the professor of management at California State University and the author of McMindfulness. And although I wasn't here for the discussion, Wendy spoke to Ron about all of the background of mindfulness and the utilization of mindfulness in the wellness industry, both the goods and the bads. So let's have a listen. Ron Purser, I am so glad to have you on the podcast today. And I just wanted to start by you giving people a little bit of a background on what your current position is and what your book, McMindfulness, is about. Sure. Thank you, Wendy, for inviting me to your podcast. And uh, I am a professor of management at San Francisco State University. Uh, I've been there roughly 24 years or so. And uh, I'm supposed to use this title now because I just got an award <laughs> called the Lamb Larson uh, Distinguished Research Professor Award. So that, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been teaching there uh, in the management department. And prior to that, I was at uh, Loyola University of Chicago mm. uh, at the Water Tower campus. Um, but... I have not really seen myself as a traditional management professor. I probably should have been in philosophy or sociology uh, department or maybe religious studies. Uh, so I've always been, even in my own field, sort of on the fringe in terms of uh, being critical of, uh, of management uh, science and behavioral science techniques. And so I think it was around 2010 or so, I started watching these uh, YouTubes on Google, on, on uh, 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 well, Google owned YouTube right at that point. <laughs> so I started watching these YouTube videos about Google and uh, how they were bringing in uh, all sorts of interesting uh, people in the mindfulness community, different mindfulness teachers, neuroscientists. Uh, these were talks at Google. And mm -hmm. Google was one of the first corporations, not one of the first, they were one of the first in the Silicon Valley that really began to uh, offer mindfulness programs to their engineers and their employees uh, in their Mountain View uh, uh, campus. I, I took notice of that, obviously, because um, I'm, I'm right here in, in San Francisco. Uh, and, but also because I, I do have a Buddhist background and uh, a long-term Buddhist student of Buddhism going back to my mid-20s. Um, so I think it was the convergence of those currents that were happening along with, um, the media that was beginning to really, uh, cover, uh, mindfulness. And it was a lot of, uh, media coverage and a lot of hype, uh, about, uh, the benefits of mindfulness. And I wrote a, uh, a 1200 word article with a friend of mine by the name of David Loy, which we published in the uh, Huffington Post. It was called Beyond McMindfulness. Uh, and it, it sort of went viral, to my surprise, <laughs> and caused quite a stir uh, in different various communities. And a debate, and debates were starting to happen. Uh, 
But what was interesting is that, uh, you know, just as an aside, as an academic uh, who's published mostly in academic journals or in, in scholarly books and things like this, it had the most impact in my entire career, this t- <laughs> short 1,200-word right? article. And I, 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 I sort of uh, realized that um, there was this whole new world called uh, social media and <laughs> mass media uh, journalism. Um, uh, and I, I kind of started going in that direction and learning how to write more for the uh, general audience than just to scholars. So that led me over a course of four, five, six years as I started to follow the trends in the mindfulness uh, industry. Uh, and I got to a point where I felt I, I had enough to write a book. And so I, I kind of used that meme, that cultural meme, McMindfulness <laughs> is the title. Uh, and uh, basically I added a lot more material in terms of, I, I had absolutely no knowledge prior to writing the book since I'm not a political scientist. <laughs> But I, uh, you know, came across the, a lot of social scientific writings about neoliberalism, uh, not just as a economic and political philosophy, but also had, how it uh, actually had an impact on people's, uh, the way they see themselves in society, the way they, uh, their subjectivity, if you want to use that academic term, and how, how these sort of subtle... Uh, forces within neoliberalism had an influence on people's uh, sense of self and the implications that had for uh, this notion of self-care, sort of the trends towards the wellness industry, which is a $4 billion industry now, self-help, popular self-help books, all all these sort of things kind of were kind of under the same umbrella for me. And that helped me make sense of what was going on in terms of how mindfulness was being co-opted in our society uh, to be redeployed, uh, to actually sort of uh, become the new capitalist spirituality, as was subtitled the book, uh, Mm -hmm. and and serve as sort of a salvic force to maintain and uh, perpetuate the status quo. Um, So that was sort of the big picture idea that drove me to write the book. Yeah, and I, I I love the concept that you have in the book. And if I can just read out an excerpt here, because I, I just love the way you put this. It says, um, by failing to address collective suffering and systemic change that might remove it, they rob, mi- they rob mindfulness of its real revolutionary potential, reducing it to something banal that keeps people focused on themselves. Yeah, I think that that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> and this concept that mindfulness has a real potential to be a change agent. Yeah. And yet, the way we're using it now, and I think there are a lot of folks in medicine who would agree that it isn't being used to its full potential. And it, it is helpful to some individuals to maintain kind of their high-performance machine, but the way it's being rolled out across healthcare may not be as helpful to folks as one might hope. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I saw that, uh, to be the case, not just in other contexts too. I mean, uh, in, in private corporations, in government, in public schools, uh, in the U S military, uh, 
I think there's a common thread that uh, it's it's a highly kind of privatized mindfulness practice uh, it, that is uh, has kind of a neoliberal way of understanding, uh, a depoliticized way of understanding stress as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I sort of go into that. The history of, of stress really has much more of a biological and biomedical perspective. Uh, uh, interpretation, uh, which has become dominant, the dominant sort of narrative, right. uh, that stress is all something that's the maladaptation of the individual to their environment, which now, obviously there is, that's part of the equation. Um, you know, people's emotional reactions and reactivity, uh, how people respond to their uh, environment surely is partly their responsibility. But when the pendulum has swung all the way over to the individual and the atomized individual that is uh, then sort of held fully responsible for their own well-being and stress and mental health, (laughs) then we're in a neoliberal sort of um, narrative. And that is what I challenge in the book. I don't uh, really question the value of mindfulness. Um, I've practiced meditation for 35 years. So I'm not a, a naysayer. Uh, uh, of any kind of self-care practice, but I am a critic, a social critic, when it comes to the exploitation of these techniques uh, without any kind of critical analysis of, you could say, the systemic and structural causes of uh, toxic working conditions or workplace stressors and, and, and so on. So that's really where my, uh, my criticism comes in. So um, there was a lot to unpack, you know, mm-hmm. to understand how does that happen rhetorically? How does that happen in terms of how these programs are sold? You know, the, you know, it's it's a it's sort of, it is an industry, uh, and I think we got to keep that in mind. That's uh, it's it's become a very profitable uh, commodified uh, set of techniques that are uh, very very attractive to corporate management. Yeah, so you said that the wellness industry was $4 billion? $4 billion. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the mindfulness industry is? Yeah, the mindfulness industry was uh, estimated to be about $1.5 billion. Wow. And going on uh, $2, two, $2 billion by 2023. I remember seeing a market report on hmm. that. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. So in healthcare, one of the things that struck me in reading the mindfulness was this sense of using mindfulness as as sort of like the only way i can think of it is as an opiate for the masses almost mm-hmm. as a way to tolerate yeah. the distress that you're feeling and when we look at healthcare and we know that 50% of clinicians are feeling some level of distress that suggests to me that this is probably not an individual frailty that 50% of the clinicians who went through medical school or nursing school or wherever aren't less resilient there's probably something in the environment that's causing the distress so i just i wonder how you would think about that yeah well i think that the diagnosis is just a little too convenient (laughs) (laughs) that um the stress that people are experiencing is is has nothing to do with their actual working conditions or actual material conditions nor the unreasonable demands that are being placed upon them. Um, and again, it goes back to what I said, that that's because stress is 
sort of explained as this private, subjective, uh, individualized problem. Uh, and the late critical uh, psychologist David Smale, who worked for the uh, British uh, National Health Service, I'm very, I was a fan of his, his work. He died of, uh, four or five years ago. I'm not sure mm -hmm. exactly, but he, he called this uh, way of thinking uh, magical voluntarism, where the burden and uh, the locus of psychological distress and, 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 the, and the burden of change is squarely placed on the will of the individual sort of to self-manage and uh, or pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, right? Mm. Um, so I think that until we kind of come to terms with challenging that sort of limited way of viewing stress that uh, the cure on hand will continue to be popular. Uh, and so I think that we have to uh, expand our notion of, you know, what stress is in a more uh, social, political, economic sort of framework. And, you know, otherwise we're sort of uh, taken in by this kind of social my myopia. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this is all kind of tied into the neoliberal turn, uh, as uh, Michel Foucault talked about it. The neoliberal turn is this turn inward to work on oneself. And uh, it's, it kind of creates this blind spot towards the social and the political and the economic context that, that, that are generating the stresses that, that, that we're feeling in the first place. So mindfulness becomes part of that narrative that it will relieve all the stress that you have uh, without having to take into account uh, the, the context that you're in. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that just is, um, you know, and now you have the neuroscientific uh, sort of narratives where people are uh, mindfulness works. Uh, it's been proven by science. So now you have the force of science or the uh, science is the arbiter of truth behind it. And you see the fancy imagery of uh, meditators. The and MRIs the FMRI, and the fMRIs. Uh, and... Right. And it's kind yeah. of a neurocentric way of, of thinking. Right. Uh, and again, it's all focused on now, you know, one's biology. So it's not a practice that's uh, seen as socially embedded within a wider social, economic, and political context. Kind of erases the whole idea of, of context. When you talk about neoliberalism, not everybody in our audience maybe is familiar with that term. So could you just help us define or share with us how you define it so that we have the context to put it in? Yeah, it is a tricky uh, and very loaded term, uh, very contested term. Uh, I, I really don't want to go into a thesis on it, but I will <laughs> basically just maybe talk about it in terms of, if you don't mind, I'll talk about it more in terms of what Michel Foucault, the French philosopher, and how he uh, characterized it. He, he saw it as a style, uh, he used the term government, uh, and he didn't mean political government like in Washington, D.C. or anything. Mm -hmm. He meant how we govern ourselves. And uh, in this period that we're in, the neoliberal period, he saw this form of governance not just as a political activity, but really how power is, 
how power relations are linked to our sense of self and how we see ourselves, our sense of subjectivity. So neoliberalism is basically placing uh, one's sense of self as uh, a complete autonomous individual within society. And that kind of goes back to like uh, the, the early 1980s when Margaret Thatcher made the remark that there is no such thing as society. Um, hmm. We're just and, a collection so of individuals. It's, yeah. It's like a complete hmm. atomization of society. And hmm. it was, it came out of actually a fear of communism historically, but basically it's, it's a way to say that the free market is king. And if you just leave everything to the free market, things will resolve themselves. So it's really a force of, uh, a political force for destroying anything that has to do with social safety nets, uh, unions, any kind of uh, collectivities, uh, any forms of uh, community that can gain uh, power. Uh, now, the way it works in terms of, of a Foucauldian uh, application is that these forms of expertise within society, such as psychologists, uh, mindfulness teachers, um, <laughs> uh, they sort of uh, operate as kind of a relay. Uh, they kind of use their institutional authority to invoke this kind of micro level of power so that people then begin to govern themselves autonomously. You don't need uh, coercive forms of power. You actually just need people to uh, internalize these forms of power so that they become sort of self-managing and uh, self-surveillance, almost like surveilling their own uh, behavior. And so this is, this is kind of, this is part of the reason why you say mindfulness might be making things worse in some sense. Yeah, well, yeah, because it can have an effect that people blame themselves. It is a form of victim blaming in some ways. Um, and it discourages uh, a dialogue and organizing. It discourages people to ask uh, more critical questions that uh, would uh, call into question the, the real sort of sources of stress and anxiety that people are feeling. Uh, and because personal troubles are never attributed to political or socioeconomic conditions, they're always framed as psychological mm -hmm. and diagnosed as personal pathologies. And that's where the biomedical paradigm comes in, because mindfulness came out of a biomedical paradigm. The mindfulness-based stress mm -hmm. reduction uh, started in the hospital clinic. Uh, so, so I went to UMass. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I spent a few lunch times on the conference room floor with John Kabat-Zinn. Oh. <laughs> a, a few. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah, we could see that Foucault calls this the form of disciplinary power, and because people become self-disciplined, they discipline themselves, they police themselves, mm. and this is exactly what, um, this is just, a, you know, kind of mindfulness, uh, you know, one reason we have to ask, step back and ask is, why is it so market-friendly? Why has it been so popular? Why has right. it been so, because it doesn't offer any challenge to the status quo. In fact, it's very sort of uh, colluding and, and, and seamlessly sort of cooperates with uh, 
uh, political centers of power, whether they're in the corporation or in the hospital. Right. Right. So it's easy. It's easy for the folks who are trying to run the hospital to offer a mindfulness program that might help them keep keep folks managing themselves rather than rather than questioning addressing understaffing right. uh, whatever it may be um there's tons of examples that i'm more familiar with in the corporate world and i don't know if you saw the recent um glaring dystopian example that i don't know how it took them so long to to come around but amazon the amazon uh, warehouses mm-hmm yeah, it's all over the news now. It's called Amazon. Oh, no. Uh, the Amazon uh, Working Wellness Program. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, what's been going on in these Amazon warehouses, but they're Very. Um, notorious for workplace injuries. Uh, and, and there's stories of, you know, because of the intense uh, robotic uh, auto, automation going on that these warehouse employees are running and barely have any time to take a bathroom break. But on the shop floor of these warehouses, they've installed these coffin, uh, vertical kind of almost look like, uh, porta potties with, uh, <laughs> and they say Amazon booth where you go in there, you know, privately you can go in there and watch some video, uh, that will teach you how to do a, a short mindfulness practice while you're in this booth. Do they like set aside 15 seconds for you to do that during your day? Yeah, that, that is know, that one I, of the I, stops on their I, on the distribution run? Yeah, I don't know how much time <laughs> they allot for it, but it has, it's probably not too long as one could no. imagine. Um, I mean, we we live in we live in an area with a that is just warehouses everywhere, and so it is a very clear and present concern for us. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it's like uh, probably they've now become the poster boy for for mindfulness for me. Yeah, it used to be Google, but now they've taken over. Yeah, wow. I mean, that, that's really that's really the epitome of asking someone to tolerate really difficult working conditions and making you responsible for correcting the dysfunction in your system. Yeah, or tolerating it. Yeah, I mean, you know, there have been recent attempts to also unionize these warehouse facilities right. and Amazon um, uh, poured tons of money into anti-union campaigns. Mm. Um, uh, so this, uh, and this is not all that dissimilar. It happened to at Starbucks. There was like about a year ago, I think right before the COVID shutdown, um, COVID, uh, uh, Starbucks employees, uh, bar- baristas, uh, put together a petition saying, hey, um, we're really overstressed and we can't pay our rent. We need more hours and we've lost our health care because we're, you need a certain amount of hours for those health benefits to kick in. And, uh, so Starbucks responded, uh, human resources said, Oh, we will, we will give you a free subscription. Every barista will get a free subscription to headspace. And so there you go. And headspace being the, uh, meditation, most one of the most popular mindfulness meditation apps. Right. But that's another example of, of this hidden ideology uh, behind uh, these techniques. And so the mindfulness movement sort of adheres to this hidden ideology that's the individual that needs to learn how to adapt and to cope. Right. So I'd really, I'd love to shift and talk about how mindfulness can be used for revolution. Because I think that's a that's a great concept. 
that's sort of an under-theorized and, and, and um, uh, untapped potential, as you mentioned. And I think, first of all, as we've been talking, we really have to uh, critique this whole idea of stress and see how we've bought into this depoliticized notion of, of stress. And there used to be a, in sociology, of, uh, there used to be a term called healthism, too, uh, where that also sort of presumed that stress was strictly an individual's uh, uh, concern. Mm -hmm. And so I think, we, you know, we really have to cut through that sort of uh, uh, dominant narrative uh, if we're going to get beyond uh, the biomedical approach to, to mindfulness. Um, but I think that it does have a potential. Um, you know, self-care... Uh, you know, there was Audre Lorde, the uh, the black feminist activist, said she had a famous uh, statement about self-care, uh, that it wasn't, an, uh, I, I don't know exactly the quote, but it wasn't a form of self-indulgence, that it could be uh, a form of uh, political warfare. And uh, because if we look at this idea of neoliberalism and how it, it functions as a form of uh, trying to seep into our psychopolitics, you know, to, to tell us how we should be seeing society and how we should be seeing ourselves in relation to society, then it becomes a site of political struggle in a way. And so we can use these forms of mindfulness more as a form of resistance rather than as a form of conformity uh, or uh, a form of uh, being co-opted into the status quo. So... I'm always inspired by, uh, you know, movements like uh, the civil rights movement or Gandhi's, uh, uh, you know, uh, movement to free India, because those were both religious impulses in a way, spiritual impulses that were uh, tapped for their potential. Uh, you know, in the Western Judeo-Christian tradition, we have this prophetic tradition of justice uh, and and so now we're starting to see uh, some people uh, kind of wed together mindfulness practices with social justice activism and uh, and in that sense you know it's not just some sort of uh, palliative right it becomes uh, uh, a force, a, a truth force, like Gandhi called it, a truth force for social and political change. Mm -hmm. I like to call it, I, I refer to it more as civic mindfulness, to try to get it away from this highly individualistic, highly privatized approach. And uh, so there's no reason why, because mindfulness programs are pedagogical programs, they're educational programs, they're usually offered, you know, some are offered for eight weeks, people, you know, participate in uh, couple of hours. There's no reason why you couldn't have uh, on that program a whole different kind of pedagogical set of uh, learning objectives, right? That say, okay, let's, what do you think the sources of stress are coming from? Can we have a dialogue about that, <laughs> a critical dialogue? At the same time, we can learn how to practice, you know, forms of, of mindful breathing and mindfulness, but let's link together uh, uh, the social, the political, and the individual. Uh, and, you know, this is completely possible 
And there are people doing that. Uh, There's some friends of mine in the United Kingdom. They started a, a network called the Mindfulness for Social Change Network. And uh, they're offering programs on uh, racial justice and mindfulness, um, all kinds of things. Uh, so we need to move it away from the civic mindfulness, kind of reorients and uh, the practice away from purely uh, instrumental ends and open up the possibility uh, for forging a commitment to social justice. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, healthcare could certainly use that. As you're talking about neoliberalism and breaking things down into individuals, I was thinking, this is this is very similar to what's happened to medicine over the past ten years or so. Is clinicians are now working in their own tiny little silos. They don't have time to reach out to their neighbors or their colleagues. They don't have time to call to ask for an informal consult. They don't have they don't meet in their medical societies very much anymore. And so, one of the things we've asked people to do is to to start paying attention and building community. Oh, because as, yeah. as we saw in the pandemic, the the places that did better were the places that were tied tightly together, uh, where and, people had each other's backs. Right. And so this concept of, of using mindfulness, both to meditate on what the challenges are, to help you identify where the stressors are coming from and what parts of your system you might need to change, as well as a way to bring folks together to identify together the same challenges would be, that would be a great concept. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that it's been another one of my uh, concerns is that a lot of mindfulness programs uh, don't involve this kind of dialogue, this kind of collective communitarian sort of spirit uh, people kind of go their own ways after taking the course. They're, they're not really building these bonds of solidarity uh, to kind of examine how stress and suffering and the cultural malaise that we feel is, is very sort of interlocking levels of complexity. Um, and so any kind of reductionistic way of trying to understand stress is uh, suspect. And... Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is an educational. It reminds me much, very much of Paulo Freire's sort of work of uh, pedagogy of the oppressed, you know, uh, that we need democratic pedagogies mm-hmm. that can uh, it kind of link themselves to these sort of uh, practices. And they can uh, be a force for deliberative democracy, actually. It could be a force for having people... Uh, be able to have dialogues with each other in in uncomfortable situations too. We can use them for uh, building bridges across political divides too. There's all kinds of, I think, ways that this this can be turned into uh, much more of a uh, social form or civic form of mindfulness. Uh, I know that activists are using them, like the Occupy movement used mindfulness. They had people, <laughs> you know, had mindfulness sessions at the Occupy uh, Wall Street. But Extinction Rebellion has explicitly uh, adopted and are uh, engaging in workshops uh, on uh, using mindfulness to help de-escalate, uh, to maintain sort of the nonviolent stance and so forth. Uh, so I think we already see it happening in some ways, in some some places. Yeah. Well, that's really great to know, and I mm-hmm. think that's um, that would be a great thing for us to 
uh, you know, us meaning healthcare to aspire to. I want to thank you for coming and joining us today. This was, this is really a great conversation. Well, thank you, Wendy. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Wendy, that was a superb discussion, and it was about something that you and I have discussed and talked about a lot, which is this idea that mindfulness is a cure-all for distressed clinicians. And I think the part of this conversation that was exciting for me to hear is a professor of management challenging this notion. A professor of management who practices mindfulness on a regular basis and has for decades. Yeah, and I think what was so interesting to me was that he wasn't saying that mindfulness was a bad thing. He was saying it's a good thing, but that it's not put into a context that is appropriate or really deep enough to use it in the way that it's meant to be used. Right. And it's the coaptation of something that has a worthwhile utility to keep people focused on themselves rather than using this as an agent for change. Yeah, exactly to help us tolerate the intolerable rather than identifying those things that could be changed. Right. I loved his discussion that stress is the maladaptation of an individual to the environment, but that uh, a lot of the mindfulness industry has looked at this without considering that, that it cannot all be about the individual. And that's where the, the, the rub happens. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the other thing that Ron spoke about, which really hit home with me, was the idea that some of these self-help techniques have become a very attractive or, or um, maybe a convenient solution for corporate America. By ignoring the environment, it's sort of, it's just a lot easier to say, hey, look inwardly and see what you can do about it. Yeah, I think there's, there's almost this sense that we don't know what else to do. This is a really big problem that's almost bigger than any of us. We don't know what to do about it. So let's at least give people something and maybe if we just keep trying different iterations of this one thing, we'll get to a point where we'll hit on the one that works. Yeah. Well, we've tried that with a handful of things, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now maybe it's time to think, okay, this, this approach isn't working. Yeah. Perhaps even more so, I think one of the things you both spoke about, which I think is important to remember, is it's not benign to do something that doesn't work. There are actually things about misuse of mindfulness that make things worse. Yeah. People start to blame themselves and people stop asking why there's a problem or what the cause of the problem is. It's a little bit like an article you and I wrote a while back about gaslighting. If you keep telling people often enough that they're the problem, eventually they may actually believe it, or at least the very least part of that is they may ignore what really is going on around them. Right. You know, the final point that you and Ron spoke about that I think is worth mentioning and worth highlighting is the idea of using mindfulness for change and how do you use it in a productive way? Because certainly, you know, you and I are highly critical of some aspects of it. And there are some things, as we said, that uh, can be somewhat harmful, but how do we use it in a way that's productive? And so, you know, I really liked Ron's idea of civic mindfulness and the idea that this is not about the individual and simply going to the society, if you like, or the group or the organization and asking what the stresses are for everybody and using mindfulness in a more collective way than an individual way. Yeah, that, that sense of building community around mindfulness and using it as a way to say, I'm going to pay attention to the things that are causing me stress and I'm going to pay attention to the things that are working well and let's see if we can bridge one to the other. Exactly, exactly. 
Well, as always, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios with logistics and coordination from Kenzie Burkhardt and Nikki Krauss. To learn more about the nonprofit, Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work that we do, you can make a donation while you're there. And you can visit us. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes. You can continue the conversation there and you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. If you subscribe, rate, and review the show, it makes it easier for other people to find us. Stay well. Thank you for listening.